now you're toughing it out in Ban Francisco. Get your snow pants out. Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM every single Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our website is consumerchoiceradio.com. There you can find all of our other programs, the guest segments, everything that we put up also on YouTube. So you can find all the links there, including our RSS feed if you'd like to add this as a podcast. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, reporting to you from the Imperial City, Vienna, Austria. It is an amazing week. Things are cooling down, and uh, we're feeling pretty good about it. And I'm joined, as always, on the mic by my co-host up there in Toronto, Ontario, David Clement. David, how goes it? It's going well. It's going well. My, uh, my second COVID-19 beard is in full form, uh, unfortunately viewers or listeners on the radio aren't uh, aren't graced by this very luscious beard that I've been able to grow over the last three months. This is now round two. So hopefully I don't get to a round three because that would be really depressing. But yeah, the beard is good. Um, trying to stop, <laughs> trying to hold off through what looks like a second wave uh, um, coming or maybe already started. Um, so I guess more depressing is on that front, but, um, all, all else considered things are okay. Things are pretty good. Yeah. We're now in October. Uh, so we're entering yet another month of the craziest and uh, most disastrous year that we've known so far. And, uh, there's plenty of stuff that that's kind of come across the news ticker, uh, here at the consumer choice radio studio, a couple things that are top of mind, and uh, you probably heard a good amount about all week, but you haven't heard the consumer choice take, and that is the grand debate. The gloves are off. The debate is live. It's Trump v. Biden. Will you just shut up, man? Will you just <laughs> shut up, man? Yeah, I thought there would be more uh, quips from Trump. Uh, maybe there are a few, but a lot of the stuff... If I remember correctly, because now we're a few days past, if I remember correctly, a lot of stuff was just kind of happening, you know, under his breath or kind of uh, muttering when uh, Joe was talking. Uh, I'm sure there were some zingers there, but I didn't get to hear all of them. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have any clips that we can play on the show just because I, I don't think we had any from that. Yeah, it's I mean, it's someone I follow on social media basically was like, oh, I feel bad for one, the people who have to try and transcribe what was said because there is official there is official um transcription of what was said and two i feel bad for the social media teams who are going to try and have to parse out like snippets from the debate but there are no good snippets because the two are interrupting each other the whole time um so i i think jake tapper probably said it best um i think he called it a a hot mess in a in a dumpster fire in a train wreck or something along those lines um certainly not a great day for american democracy um but then again we had two 70 year old guys going at it i mean it was funny i tweeted 
I've seen this argument before. Oh, I, I, yeah, years ago, I remember at the time my two 80 year old grandparents arguing over whether or not my grandfather had had too many Coca-Colas. And it was basically the same argument where you had no idea what anybody was saying. They're talking past each other. They're bringing up stuff that has no relevance. Uh, there's ad hominems flying left, left and right. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a mess. Um, Trump came out pretty hot. Some people think it was too hot. Some people think he won. Some people think he lost. I have my opinion, but I'm interested to hear yours, Yael, in terms of who you think the winner was, if we can even crown one. Yeah, hard to say for uh, these kind of debates. Um, you know, I think both were probably in their own bunkers prepping a good amount. Uh, I believe it was Rudy Giuliani and uh, Chris Christie who had prepped the president and uh, probably gave him some lines as to, you know, what he would do. But yeah, he was definitely a steamroller. And uh, that's the people who like Trump, who are in that camp, uh, saw that and they just loved it. And the people who are on Biden's side, I think that's that's where more of the focus is, because one thing that we started seeing being revealed as the onion was being peeled was that a lot of the things that Trump was launching Biden's way, I mean, they're all issues that we've discussed on this radio program going back the last couple of months, uh, the whole year, uh, all of the different plans and discussions that were brought up in terms of the Democratic nomination, all the things about health care and Green New Deal. And Trump was using these to lob, but uh, you know, I, I would say Biden was effective in saying, well, I don't believe that. The, that's not my plan. Um, there was this kind of strange thing where he said, I am the Democratic Party, so whatever I say goes. Uh, but I did just see today that the Green New Deal is on the Biden website um, as part of his uh, platform. So that is yeah. interesting. And there's probably a lot more there. So it's... Yeah, it's hard to say. I think we definitely need to have another two or three debates. I, I'm excited by this. Look, who cares? Hot mess. Um, there was one tweet from Russia today about, oh, look how crazy this is. And then some guy just said, well, at least we have a debate. <laughs> at least, yeah, we, at least have we have options. multiple candidates and, you know, something. And uh, obviously... Your, your opposition leader is just coming out of a coma. <laughs> yeah, anybody who comes up gets poisoned, gets the knife. Yeah, um, I would say it would be really interesting. I even think Trump would be open to the idea of allowing third-party debaters on there, people from the Libertarian or Constitution Party or even the Green Party up there. I think yeah, Trump I would, would be into it. It would probably be a bigger f- ratings spectacle, by the way. Well, it would, be, it would be great because they would have to take jabs from each side. It would be much more like the primaries where you have – you're basically taking barbs from your left and your right. Um, on the note of Joe, I, I think he really had to do two things going into the debate. The first is to show everybody that he can do it, right? A lot of people were worried that he couldn't do it because he's too old and he maybe didn't have the the gusto to, to hold on for an hour and a half, but he did. Well, um, one, one quick thing on that. The reason that, you know, that was, as you said, the expectations were set very low. Oh, Joe's going to forget his lines or he's going to whatever. The thing is, is there were moments where you could see he was kind of losing the script. But then Trump would just go in and bully and use his, you know, normal rhetoric. And, you, you know, we you couldn't see that because I think it would have happened inevitably that Joe would have lost his train of thought or just said something like just kind of out from left field had Trump allowed him to speak 
but he yeah, wanted to like dominate if, and wanted to live rent free in everyone's brain once more. Yeah, it's like if he had given him more time to like there there was one exchange where he was like there are three things number one and he got like a little bit of the way through and then he said number two and then Trump interrupted him and he didn't say whatever number two was and then he went to go and say number three and Trump's like well you're on number two you are number two uh, <laughs> is like just weird weird I, it, it it almost felt like if Trump hadn't have interrupted him it could have been a um, a Rick Perry moment where he's like, yeah, there's, there's five things I'm going to get rid of. One, two, uh, what was the third? <laughs> I don't know if yeah, you remember that one. I, yeah, it definitely could have been like that. And another thing I was thinking about is what were the topics that weren't discussed? Uh, there was like virtually nothing on foreign policy, which is actually like the, the biggest uh, field of policy that a president actually has prerogative in. That didn't happen. Um, you know, what else? Definitely nothing about cannabis, nothing about legalization, nothing about drugs. There was a little bit about the lockdown in the beginning. And I think Trump was very strong on that, saying that Joe was the, the candidate of lockdowns. You know, I, he'll, he'll lock down the whole country. Well, I think that that was one part where Joe actually like if, if this was a boxing match and we were scoring it, it was a lockdown discussion it was one where Joe lost a point because Trump was eight, was saying, well, he's he's pro lockdown, et cetera, et cetera. And Joe kind of like, no, I'm not. But then a minute and a half later, Biden says, well, you can't reopen the economy until you handle the pandemic first, which suggests for the listener that he is in fact in favor of these lockdowns. So I'm not sure how that's going to play with the voters that they need to reach. I mean, what does that look like for someone in Michigan um, I mean, they had some pretty crazy local rules. So do they do they watch that and go, ooh, okay, well, plus one for Trump, minus one for Joe? I'm not sure. Um, and then there was the whole question of, is Joe basically being controlled? And you alluded to, to this already. Is he being controlled by the further left part of the party? And from my perspective, I thought he did a pretty good job of distancing himself from the Green New Dealers and the AOCs and, and all of that by saying, no, I won. I beat Bernie. This is my party. Uh, I don't support that. Now, Wallace, the moderator, did do a pretty good job of pressing him on some of the Green New Deal stuff when he was basically like, yeah, you just said that you're not in favor of the Green New Deal, but I've read your plan and you have like the retrofitting of the buildings and all of these aspects of the Green New Deal. So a little little bit of murkiness there, but I, I think generally speaking, um, I, I think generally speaking, Joe did a decent job of kind of keeping that part of the party at arm's length. I really don't understand why he just doesn't do that full time. Like, be the centrist candidate, make it easy. Yeah, and that's what's interesting about these debates is, and we covered the primary debates as I mentioned. And that was, you know, trying to speak to the party faithful of the Democratic Party. And now you're speaking really to the country, unfortunately, the whole world. By the way, that's a whole other issue. But uh, yeah. I think the latest Gallup numbers state that that 29% of the uh, U.S. populace considers themselves Republicans, 30% Democrats, and 40% are independents. 
And the idea in these debates is you're trying to appeal to these guys. You know, so how do you best frame your policies or ideas or failures of the previous candidate or, or president in order to appeal to those guys? It, it was tough, you know, because it is a, a clash of personality and it's not super substantive. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that David, you and I would have loved to have there. And had we been, you know, advisors uh, to either candidate here, we probably would have tried to put together. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of gotcha stuff. And I, I think most people hate that. Most people don't like it. And it's different because not everybody watching this is a hardcore politico who yeah. understands the issues, the nuances. I mean, the whole deal with, um, you know, having to denounce white supremacist groups, you know, I, that was, uh, I think, a big takeaway from a lot of people, mm -hmm. uh, specifically among my non-political friends. It's like, well, how hard is it to just denounce uh, some white extremist group, like, you know, whatever, X or Y, Proud Boys. Well, it's like, well, if you actually understand the Proud Boys and a bit more about what that is, it's just kind of like a fight club. It's, you know, it's headed up by a Hispanic dude, has really nothing to do with race, everything to do with ideology and politics, by the way. But yeah, this but is the kind of thing that's thrown out there. And of course, it'd be easier if he just said, I denounce, this is terrible, He'll also, do so. I think it's. Not, I don't think it's because he holds any deep-seated beliefs. I, I don't think that's true. I really just think he's not an effective communicator on this. Yeah, and he's he, and he wants it to happened be strong twice. when he answers. And it happened twice. So there was that question, um, which he completely fumbled, and then there was the qu the question of the peaceful transition of power. It was like once all of the votes are counted, if you lose, will you accept the results? And Joe Biden's answer was yes. And Trump's answer was four and a half minutes of, well, this uh, scrutineers ballots like all over the map, which I mean, if you're if you're someone who's politically apathetic and you don't really like you're not like us and you're not in the weeds all day, every day on all of this stuff, you know, and this is your introduction to the candidates. You're like, why didn't he just answer the question? It's a really easy like, yeah, you better answer it. Like the, yeah, the, the he, answer he better to, be yes. He wants to play all sides, right? And yeah. it, it, it's it's like it's a business guy move. You know, you, you make sure that you win no matter what in terms of the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So he wants to make it so that if there is some kerfluffle and ballots are late and they have to do recounts, you know, that it will be a, a stain. But at the same time, if he does somehow eke out, he can still say, ha-ha, yeah, we won, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of stuff, you're right, to the non-political person listening, uh, it's tough. And uh, people who are listening here, you know, you're listening yeah, to talk radio or, or podcast, you know, you're in this, you probably already know who you like, who you don't like, which mm -hmm. ideas you, you're in favor of. So again, mm -hmm. you're not going to be convinced by this. Uh, you'll be further entrenched. Maybe it'll change the way you talk about it. But that's the yeah. kind of stuff that, you know... Is tough, and, and I think I think one Trump one opportunity is he just if he had brought up Harris, if he had brought her up Kamala Harris multiple times, I think that would have been way more effective. Yes, the number of times that Biden has said, you know, oh, a Harris Biden administration, um, all the things that Harris said during the debates, you know, when she was trying to become the Democratic nominee, a lot of this stuff she wanted to ban private insurance, if we remember. Yeah. Come on, yeah. there's plenty of, of good stuff there. I I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to say. Of course, it's not you or I on that stage. So. No, no. One thing I do wish Joe had done on that last question, so of once the 
votes are counted, will you accept the results? His answer was great. He's like, yes, if I win, I win. If I don't win, I don't win. But what he should have followed that up with is President Trump's answer should be exactly the same. And the fact that he can't give you a yes or no answer is completely unacceptable. And yet another reason why he shouldn't still be president of the United States. Um, yeah, that's, I would that's have loved tough. like a good punch there to just be like, I mean, talk about an example of why this guy is just a goof. And I mean, he called him a clown, which I thought was kind of, kind of funny. I actually am surprised that was planned. Yeah. Yeah, it was planned. But I'm surprised that the, I mean the best tweet I saw was Joe Biden hasn't dropped an F bomb yet. And that is why he deserves to be president because he has the temperament to do to do this. Mm. Yeah, and I'm looking here at the calendar. Next debate is going to be Wednesday already. Salt Lake City. Oh, is that wow. the vice presidential debate or the... Oh, sorry, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. That is the... Well, hold on. That's the vice presidential. Okay, the next presidential debate will be October 15. Yes. Uh, so that's two weeks. Although okay, there are rumors well... that that might not even happen. Well, I would hope so. That's in Miami. Interesting. Yes, yes. Okay, oh, finally, it's going to be C-SPAN. I, I love C-SPAN. Uh, C-SPAN is my preferred network for mm -hmm. political commentary, mainly because there ain't none. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty, not pretty bland in a good well, it's, way. Well, it's just like direct feeds from uh, you know what's happening in the House and Senate. Maybe you have book TV, so some nerd for an hour will talk about their thing, or the Washington Journal, which I think is the best, the best morning television program. If you if you do own a television and are interested in politics, you should just watch Morning Journal because that's where or Washington Journal. That's just where people are calling in from around the country with their own crazy takes. I love that. I've called in just once. I would love to do it again because uh, I think you get some of the you, you just I mean, it's obviously a lot of weirdos who are calling into C-SPAN, but I think it's much more entertaining than watching whatever Morning Joe or something. Yeah, I can't say that I. uh I watched that program, but I'm not oh, you got to flip it on, flip it on tomorrow morning. You'll yeah. see. <laughs> All right. All right. Hey, caller, caller is uh, Jim on the unaffiliated line in Rhode Island. Jim, what do you think? <laughs> I think this whole debate is crazy. I, I love that stuff. Well, did it's you see, best. did you, I forget which focus group was it? It was, but this was definitely the comment of the night. So it was an undecided voter. And... <laughs> the the moderator of the focus group was like okay well who are you going to vote for now and the person goes joe biden because trump sounded like a crackhead <laughs> uh yeah i'm so that that is one difference in how you consume these debates so i'm obviously a bit ahead of time so i couldn't watch it live i watched the youtube uh, version mm -hmm. without commercials or anything and no focus groups uh, normally the morning after so I've got more of a condensed version. It's tough, though. I wake up and I try not to read anything, no Twitter, no headlines, and try to go in with my own mind. But, man, uh, it'd be kind of interesting to have the, the focus debates and the spin room to hear the, the big plans, well, the spin I, room. I love when they have the button. It's like the red button and the blue button, and people tap it if they like something. So like, Oh, yeah, they have the, yeah, yeah, in the moment favorability yeah. or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah these are nice. Those are good because then nice. you see it in like real time. You're like, oh, did that did that insult stick? Oh, yep, yeah. yeah, the blue lines up or the red lines up. So we'll see, we'll see. Um, I mean, some people like the uh, someone who I have a lot of respect for, like a David Axelrod, 
Um, and even Rick Santorum. Now, I would do have to admit I was watching CNN's coverage, so it's a bit of a different world over there. Um, but they seem to think that if if this like if there's one more debate like this, that it's done, um, and that Trump isn't going to be able to overcome whatever the gap is right now. And I mean, maybe could be. Well, yeah, the biggest maybe. thing is is how does this impact you know lower ballot races? Um, North Carolina has a big Senate race. South Carolina has a big Senate race. Uh, that's another advantage that I had being back in the States and uh, being in South Carolina for a bit and seeing what the political ads there. Oof, boy, it's getting nasty. <laughs> uh, so the um, opponent of Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham is the South Carolina Republican senator. Uh, he's been there for many years. Uh, probably plenty of things to not like this guy and what he does and definitely a lot of the policies that he's pushed. I, <laughs> please don't get me started. Uh, but his yeah. opponent is Jamie Harrison. Uh, Democrat, I believe he's a former Wall Street guy. I believe he was a Goldman Sachs. I'm not sure. Uh, originally from South Carolina, and they're just kind of duking it out and battling. Apparently, his poll numbers are going south, uh, Lindsey Graham's, which is a big deal because uh, if Republicans lose the Senate, then essentially that means all the big policy priorities and um, basically everything that the Republican Senate has stopped over the past couple of years mm-hmm. uh, will probably be you know, shit well, very quickly. And, and the Schumer's impact a, Schumer's a dangerous guy. And the impact that has on the courts, which is actually one thing that really worried me in the debate. And I'm not sure if I'm overinflating the importance of the, the court. It'll be interesting to see what you think about this. The idea of court packing, that they would add Supreme Court justices to try and level uh, the playing field or tilt it in favor of the Democrats. Um, you and I haven't really talked too much much about whether or not it's right for Trump to nominate a um, nominate a Supreme Court justice in an election year. Um, but the thought of packing the court just seems like a really, really dangerous idea that creates like this cycle of retaliation. And so every time you lose, your opponents add justices to the court to try and skew it in their favor. Uh, which I don't think has been done in over 100 years. I think it's been nine for, for a long time. Yeah, FDR um, tried to do it to get all of his um, New Deal stuff passed, and, and that did not pass muster. Uh, yeah. Well, here's here's a quick, um, let's go to a, a media source, uh, one mm-hmm. that I've written for. This is an alternative uh, left weekly. Uh, this is the Queen City Nerve based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. This is the email that I got yesterday. What's left to debate? Uh, This is apparently one of the reporters, uh, so I'm quoting here just so everyone knows. If the Republican Party prevails in November, we will be unable to overturn what is becoming the most extremist, anti-democratic institution in the country, the Supreme Court. A 6-3 conservative majority will strip women of autonomy over their own bodies. Blah, 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 blah. It will rob us of our health care in the midst of a pandemic, which is gearing up for a second potentially deadlier surge. Those same corrupted conservatives on the court could well anoint Trump as our leader, even if he loses the election. Don't believe me? The 2000 election would like a word. Um, so I don't, I don't partake Ooh. in the bombastic thing. No. Uh, and I don't like, I mean, if anyone remembers the Kavanaugh stuff uh, from whatever it was a year or two ago, that was a really nasty time. And it's just nasty for, you know, I guess, human nature purposes is it doesn't really matter what the issue is. Everyone's going to choose a side. Tribalism will reign supreme. And then everyone just kind of accepts the hyperbole, accepts 
uh, all the attacks if it's favorable to your side. That's not good. In terms of the court and the appointment, I say we follow the Constitution. Constitution says president um, appoints somebody, the Senate uh, confirms a sense, whatever it might be. Well, and I don't yeah. see the need to follow these weird political games and things that, oh, well, you shouldn't nominate this or that person. Yeah, of course, everyone's a hypocrite. Uh, that's not a surprise to anybody in this world. But look, it's the court, and the court is supposed to be anti-democratic, by the way. It is supposed to be that. It's, you know, nine elite people who uh, they're whatever they write on a piece of paper essentially is what the law is to be interpreted Mm -hmm. as. It is anti-democratic, but that's the point. And that's why we have a balance of power. And if you don't like what they're doing, you try to change the president or you try to change the makeup of Congress. Uh, So that's, yeah. And the thing is, doesn't worry me. It, it, it really depends. I think like a lot of the hysteria about, um, about the justices being too socially conservative so I think on healthcare, you you would know which way the court is going to break. Um, it's pretty clear. Um, that doesn't mean that Americans don't have healthcare. I think that that's just not an accurate statement. On social issues, I don't think that John Roberts, I don't think that Gorsuch are really actually that socially conservative. I mean, they just sided with the Democrats on the issue of protected class for gender identity and sexual preference. So they've established that they are not like they are not the um, the hardcore social conservatives that the ACLU might make them out to be, uh, and so I don't know if a conser- if a six three court is is going to repeal Roe v Wade if it gets there, if it gets there, I think that it try and calm some of that concern because Biden said, well, this is going to be on the ballot now, and Trump was like, what are you talking about? No, it's not. Roe v. Wade isn't on the ballot. It's just not. Um, It's so reductive. I hate doing this every four years. Yeah. Like all of a sudden abortion once again, which again is is an extreme scenario that most people are not dealing with day to day. Mm -hmm. This should not define our entire, you know, political thing or entire political sphere. And you're right on the justices. I mean, when it came, I remember the Obama uh, or whenever the Affordable Care Act came up, um, I think it was back in 2012 or 13 that the court decided on that. And John Roberts cited, um, you know, whatever, against the conservative position in that uh, on the individual yeah. mandate. And it's likely and, he would know, do just, it again because he would be contradicting himself in, let's say, it's a month's time when it actually gets to the Supreme Court. He'd be contradicting his previous opinion if he does not continue down that road. So, I mean, I mean, there's questions of whether or not Chief Justice Roberts actually goes with the, in air quotes, the conservative side of the court. And I think that's one great thing about the system is that these are judges and, you know, they are actually interpreting these cases that come before them based on their facts and legal principles and precedent. It's not just, hey, buddy, what do you think of this? (laughs) You know, they actually need to, and if anyone's ever read a Supreme Court decision, uh, whether it be for the majority or minority, you know, they have to back it up with all kinds of precedent. They have to back it up with the jurisprudence in the case. You know, they can't just willy-nilly come up with something. I mean, they might be, you know, very much ideologically in favor of X or Y, but there are many circumstances where uh, the notorious uh, RGB, uh, where she actually sided with mm-hmm. um, the other side, you know, on a certain issue just because that's what the law 
stated. You know, she might be yeah. personally against yeah. it. And that's why the Supreme Court is a super interesting branch. I think it's interesting and cool to have this. Um, you know, there are many countries where it's very different. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that brings us to, well, to the Canadian uh, Supreme Court. Not that we have to talk about that, but I do want to talk about <laughs> one thing real quick, unless you have any other uh, closing thoughts. Well, on I just do have yeah. one, one, yeah, one closing thought on, on that is for people who don't really follow the court, it's, it's a little bit misleading to just lump people in their conservative, their liberals. And Randy Barnett had a really good article in the Washington Post about a case. Now, he is a very conservative uh, constitutional scholar, probably one of the most revered constitutional scholars, I would say, on, on that side of the political spectrum. He wrote an op-ed about a case where he was arguing in favor of a individual, a medical patient's right to essentially grow cannabis on their own property for their own medical purposes. And he, the, he lost, uh, he lost that case, but he explained in his, in his article that if the court was as political as people think it is, just, uh, Justice Ginsburg would have gone the other way. She actually went um, in favor, if we go with liberal conservatives, she sided with the conservatives against the person who was growing cannabis um, just because that was how the law was to be interpreted, despite the fact that if you had ever asked Ruth Bader Ginsburg if that individual should be allowed to, to grow can- medical cannabis for themselves, her answer would have obviously been yes. She was quite progressive on that. And so he just highlights like there are all sorts of instances where you know, we made into these bubbles, um, but it's a lot more fluid than that. And it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than they're conservative, therefore they will vote with side X on all issues. And so I think that that's really important when people start hyperventilating about the court. Um, it's important to highlight these differences and how nuanced this is because it's, it really is a lot more no complicated doubt. than that. And, uh, you know, to go over that nuance and uh, also some other topics of concern here on Consumer Choice Radio, uh, we do have a guest on the program. Uh, that we will bring on in order yes. to really try to break this down, some of the bigger issues. Um, David, you want to give the the nice intro, and then uh, we'll throw to that interview. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, exciting, exciting interview, um, really kind of wide-ranging discussion. Uh, very much looking forward that you guys are as well. Our next guest is Melissa Chen, who is the New York editor for Spectator USA and the managing director of Ideas Beyond Borders. Uh, So let's roll that clip, Jamie. So we are here on Consumer Choice Radio with uh, our next guest, Melissa Chen, the New York editor for Spectator USA and the managing director for Ideas Beyond Borders. Melissa, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Hi, David, and hi, Yael. Thanks for having me on. Great. Um, so I, we wanted to have you on the show. I know that I followed, uh, I followed a lot of the work you've been doing, obviously, with Ideas Beyond Borders and, and some of the things you've been writing more recently. And we wanted to reach out to you to talk about China, the Communist Party in China, how the West should deal with China. And right off the top, I want to hit you with this one, which is people who 
I mean, Yael and I's politics are not, uh, are, are fairly open. We fall under like the classical liberal uh, brand of politics. And one of the kind of mainstay mantras in that brand of politics is that free trade and, and open economic cooperation increases uh, openness in the societies that we do business with. So with China, the free trade with China will essentially open them up. They'll become more democratic and, and ultimately more, uh, more like us, for lack of a better word. Uh, that seems to be wrong. Uh, it's worked elsewhere, but it hasn't worked with China. Uh, curious to see what your insights are as to why that has not held true um, with, with Chinese Communist Party and, and the way in which their society is progressing. That's, you know, this is a, a really interesting question. I think um, it's been, a, it's, it's not just a libertarian position. It's really dominated, this idea has really dominated two generations of policymakers and, and government leaders, you know, over the years. And um, in many ways, I, I think people, uh, the, the consensus now is that it was wrong. Um, I actually think the theory has not been actually disproven because it hasn't been done right. The problem with engagement, our engagement with China is twofold. We made mistakes on the American side. Um, on our end, I think we, we misunderstand uh, or, or we, we kind of fail to really get at what China was doing, how China thinks, uh, China's strategy. I'll give you a good example of this. Um, the Deng Xiaoping, you know, one of the, the first leaders after Mao, uh, he was very fond of, of quoting this ancient Chinese proverb. Um, it goes Tao Guang Yang Hui, which which actually means hide your brightness, bide your time, or nourish your obscurity. And in general, this has been you know the the Chinese playbook. It's to hide your capabilities until the right time. It's it's very strategic thinking. Um, and this is something that you know American policymakers have kind of misunderstood um, as China's peaceful rise, so to speak. Um, and then the other issue I think is, you know, you talk about engagement and, and this was also Milton Friedman's theory that more economic engagement will lead to political democratization and people wanting more civil liberties. Um, but the, the mistake here is that, you know, or, or the part that kind of didn't allow this idea to be fully fleshed out is that our engagement policy did not recognize that China was not exactly being, uh, you know, reciprocating. So the, the the policy of reciprocation and equivalence, I guess, wasn't wasn't there. Um, we allowed China to continue to censor the internet. Usually, you know, as as market reforms happen, other other forms of liberalization were supposed to take place too, right? So uh, countries were were supposed to be, you know, allow free flow of information. Uh, that surely would have had an effect on, on the population's mindset, but that didn't happen in China. Instead, they, they built this, you know, the great firewall. Uh, they've blocked out, uh, they, they censor a lot of information from the World Wide Web, a lot of websites that you and I can access, take, we take freely for granted, like Wikipedia, um, Google, almost anything that, that has news on the internet um, is, is very heavily censored or blocked off entirely by the great firewall. So in, in terms of this, you know, gradual openness, that didn't happen. Uh, and, and, you know, in part, it's because of this, uh, we weren't very cognizant of the fact that China wasn't reciprocating. And, and on that note, in terms of reciprocation, this kind of leads to the next question is, what do you think the way forward is for countries like 
Canada and the United States in terms of how they deal with China, how they either encourage or enforce that reciprocation, or would it be better to try and look elsewhere in the region to Indonesia, to Taiwan, Malaysia, um, as allies in the region and kind of decouple from China? Because that certainly seems to be a popular discussion today as well. Yeah, I, I do think that the decouple strategy is, you know, especially when it comes to um, the, the parts in our supply chain that are very critical for national security, that in, in those areas, it's important for us to decouple. Um, the region is going, you know, like you mentioned, uh, Southeast Asia is a huge strategic ally. Uh, Vietnam, Bangladesh, India, we have to sort of work a little more with these allies and not um, sort of sideline them. And then, you know, there's also the intelligence sharing network that we've built with, uh, I think it was Japan, they called it the Five Ice Network. Um, Europe, EU as well. Uh, I think coronavirus has, the epidemic has actually uh, sort of shown a spotlight on on just how much our economies were interlinked and how dangerous it was, especially given you know so many of our pharmaceuticals are manufactured there. And what happens if there's a shock to the system and we had to ramp up production, but all of that production was now located inside a, a geopolitical rival that had competing national interests with us. So this in a way has kind of woken up America to the fact that we need to do some sort of decoupling and uh, you, you do see that in opinion polls. I think Americans have never been more hawkish on China's, you know, in, in history. So 80% now think that we need to take a more hawkish stance on China. And I think that's that's something that, you know, kind of in 2020 uh, has really um, brought out into the fold. Yeah, and that's something, Melissa, that hasn't uh, really gone to the fore. We had our first big presidential debate between Trump and Biden. Uh, you know, you'd think in normal times there would be <laughs> at least a good 20 minutes dedicated to something like China or geopolitics. Didn't happen. Uh, one point right. I wanted to bring up is that um, not necessarily in the United States, but in different parts of the world, people are very familiar with the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, many people in Australia who are some of our friends are actually actively battling uh, the sort of Chinese economic influence. Why should the average American uh, someone who might be tuned in here on the radio or listening for the first time, why should they care about the influence of the Chinese Communist Party? Is it any of concern to them? Should they warn their kids about things like TikTok? You know, why is it that we in a free liberal democratic society uh, really should be worried about, let's say, a, a communist party or a, a regime uh, halfway around the world? Well, China's global ambitions, um, you know, have been largely achieved, and this is very strategic because, you know, military, uh, militaristically, if China and the U.S. were to get a war, the U.S. is still, you know, the, the large, is seen as still having a bit more of a, an advantage there in terms of, of power, pure military might. Um, and that's true also in terms of the economy. So China has had to use many different ways, more subversive ways to achieve global influence. Another reason they want to do that is also because um, the Chinese Communist Party is always insecure about its legitimacy as, as a government. At the end of the day, they're not elected. They, they are a totalitarian dictatorship. And they've been in power, you know, since Mao took over. And there's always been this insecurity. So one way to get over that is to sort of pursue this soft power strategies around the world to legitimize the country and the leadership. And that 
that is achieved in that, like, you know, they have a multi-pronged strategy to do that. One of them is what you talked about, which is the Belt and Road Initiative. It is is into developing countries. They, um, you know, build infrastructure projects, like they'll build roads and railways. Um, and they kind of catch these countries in, in, in a sort of debt trap situation where if they cannot repay the debt, these are not altruistic, these are not donations to the countries. They're not doing this, on, you know, just out of their own, good, the goodwills of their hearts. Um, they are doing this as a way to have leverage. Um, this could, you know, this is so clearly seen in the case of Sri Lanka, where China went in and built a lot of infrastructure projects for them um, and saddled them with billions of dollars in debt. Sri Lanka government could not meet the terms of the repayment of the debt and therefore had to sacrifice a port, which China now, now owns in Sri Lanka. Um, so this is how China ends up, you know, it's also a good will play, play, right? Because you have a lot of developing countries, they need a lot of foreign aid. Uh, you see this in Pakistan. So you kind of win friends and influence through this, um, this game of this Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and it, it's, it's, very, it's, it's a very subversive way to do this. Um, I, I mean, the, the issue for Americans is, you know, in terms of global influence, how much influence does the U.S. have compared to China when China is playing these games increasingly? Essentially, the question is, why should average Americans uh, care about the Chinese Communist Party or the influence of the Chinese Communist Party? And how does that relate to things like technology, things like TikTok or Huawei? Um, everyone loves technology. Why should we care if things are either rubber stamped or controlled in some way by the CCP? Well, because of, um, you know, importing democratic accountability, China is exporting its model of authoritarianism to the world. Um, you know, America is sort of economic rivals with China in a way, but China merely isn't just an economic competitor. They are, it's also a geopolitical rival. And the fight here is also about who gets to mold the, the world order. Is it going to resemble more of a liberal democracy and uphold those values? Or is it going to uh, resemble more of an authoritarian system? Um, you know, so the, the US-China bilateral relationship is really one of the most consequential issues of our time. Um, and in part, it's because the, the Communist Party has been subtly waging an offensive on various fronts. So in terms of you know, influence, soft power, global diplomacy, technology, as you say, 5G, uh, education, even economics, information, and you know this is this is sort of modern warfare. It's not going to be fought on on the militaristic front because as as of now, China really can't compete with uh, American military might, and so it's easier to kind of uh, have these influence operations that weaken your 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 rival from within, um, and and exploit even like fissures in our culture wars, which China's actually doing. Uh, to sort of uh, further um, sort of destabilize an already very fragile social fabric. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah. I've, well, that's, when you say the, the kind of dividing lines in American society, I see this all the time on Twitter where, and I hate using like supercharged words like leftists and things like that, but for- Or the I'll word use, Twitter, David, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll use the word leftist to describe these people you'll see leftist narratives essentially mirror what Chinese 
senior diplomats and and government representatives are tweeting about U.S. politics. And it always struck me as so strange because obviously there was great concern about Russian influence in the last election and their involvement on social media. And it kind of seems like while focusing on Russian engagement, a lot of people forgot about how China is maybe doing or is doing essentially the same thing and really trying to drive that wedge. Uh, is that something that you've found? Am I completely off base here? Or are you seeing some of these trends as well? Oh, 100% seeing these trends. Um, actually, even in the wake of the epidemic, we've seen you know Chinese uh, state media put out videos in Arabic, uh, where a Chinese woman is basically speaking in Arabic. Uh, and this is targeted, obviously, to the Middle East and social media users there. Uh, about how, you know, there are theories that the virus actually came out of uh, a U.S. lab, um, that it was the CIA who planted this in a military exercise in Wuhan, sort of discussing these conspiracy theories. So, and all of this, you know, with a, Ch a Chinese woman speaking in, in a perfect, perfect Arabic accent. So you do see these kinds of uh, influence operations targeted globally, not just domestically. But you're right, I also have seen uh, domestic uh, sort of, you know, people, especially in the wake of the George Floyd protests, cities burning in America as a result. There was almost glee. You could almost sense that uh, on, on this, on state media accounts. We're looking at, you know, sort of the new class of what we're calling wolf diplomats, Chinese diplomats who are, you know, they have ambassador positions and they're taking a very hawkish, very assertive stance just on Twitter, you know, which is ironic because in their own countries, uh, Twitter's banned. So they're allowed to, to be on Twitter to influence us, but not, you know, we can't use Twitter to influence the Chinese population because Twitter's banned. Uh, but they've taken these stands kind of like gleefully, like gloating almost when, when America was burning and, and using the Hong Kong protests as a sort of uh, analogy here saying like, well, Nancy Pelosi, you're, you know, your cities are burning. Um, and this is what was happening in Hong Kong and China was just doing the right thing by suppressing, by suppressing this unrest, this, you know, because Nancy Pelosi tweeted that this was a beautiful sight to see pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. And these Chinese diplomats would use her words against her. So this is a beautiful sight when they pasted pictures of, say, Minneapolis burning after George Floyd. Oh, wow. Yeah, the disinfo is crazy. Uh, we're here on Consumer yeah. Choice Radio speaking with Melissa Chen of Spectator USA. If you're not following her on Twitter, which you probably are, it's at Miss Mel Chen. And we'll obviously link to that in our show notes and bio. Uh, one article of note that I wanted to point to is one that she wrote in Spectator USA, the China election, why China matters this upcoming election, covering a lot of things that we discussed uh, which is uh, obviously something deep to think about for those who aren't in the know. Uh, but listen, we wanted to pivot on something that I think is very pressing. Uh, you kind of mentioned it there a little bit. Uh, we are still in the midst in many places of a lockdown uh, due to the coronavirus. Uh, we try not to say that word too much because we might get censored on YouTube and other <laughs> channels. But uh, you know, what's it been like? I know that you are usually based in New York, but, you know, what has it been like living through that? You know, have you been able to get out? Uh, sort of how have you been able to deal with this? Um, you know, New York, New York has been, uh, uh, you know, ground zero once again for, uh, for this pandemic. 
at least domestically. And uh, we had a very harsh, I would say, two, three months, uh, but, but New York kind of opened up a lot earlier. You know, I'm, I'm right now in San Francisco. And I would say New York is back to being New York more than San Francisco is back to being San Francisco. Um, but that's because San Francisco is still in lockdown if you wanted to get, uh, you know, your eyebrows plucked or you wanted to get, you wanted to dine inside, you can't even do that. In New York wow. City now, they, they are allowing 25% uh, indoor dining occupancy at least. Um, and, and restaurants I've heard are, are now uh, approved to actually run their outdoor dining patios year round. How that is going to be possible, just given the realities of East Coast winters, I don't know. Get but, your snow um, pants you know, out. <laughs> yeah. Just imagine, you're, you know, people are going to be dining um, and, and there's going to be like snow falling and a lot of heaters maybe. I, I don't know how that's going to work and whether or not people will want to do that in the first place. But, um, you know, it's New York has uh, also been, I think I just saw a report today, 50% uh, state audit said that, reported that 50% of bars and restaurants are not going to reopen. They're going to be permanently closed, which is not surprising because it is a city in which, you know, the daytime population swells by what, seven times because people come into work from all the five boroughs. And now that has changed with work from home, um, you know, that, that swell of, of foot traffic is not going to happen in Manhattan. Everyone is just staying home. So the city feels, you know, a lot emptier. I mean, to be fair to you, you know, to New York, it actually kind of feels nicer, for, but that's just me. I hate crowds. Uh, Times Square is actually pleasant. <laughs> uh, with the, the problem also, unfortunately, is, you know, there has been a rise in homelessness, in crime in general. I have the Citizens app, which I know libertarians are very concerned about. Oh, no. uh, but I have, <laughs> but I do have the citizens app on my phone, um, you know, and and every now and then I I can see just how much, how much of an uptick in crime there has been, even in just, you know, my my neighborhood in Midtown, so it's life has changed a lot uh, in New York City. Yeah, now you're you're and, toughing uh, it out, and a lot uh, of people are also leaving. Now you're toughing it out in Ban Francisco, where I can imagine <laughs> these guys are not making it very fun uh, to be a human being in San Francisco in 2020. Yeah. San Francisco is where fun goes to die. Correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, when I when I came here, I was, you know, a, a little like wary of the fact that maybe I shouldn't pay attention to Twitter. Let me look at San Francisco with with my own eyes. Uh, no, <laughs> it is true. There is poop on the streets, and I can't tell if it's dog or human. Goodness. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, quite a sight. Luckily, I haven't been graced with with poop on the street in any of my urban uh, outings. But uh, Melissa, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. I'll give you the last word. If there's anything that you are up to or anywhere uh, where people should look for your work, um, please guide our listeners and how they can um, hear more from you moving forward. Okay, sure. Just, um, you know, read me on Spectator USA. Um, or, you you know, if you are interested more in the uh, Ideas Beyond Borders work, uh, we're just putting a lot of information out there in Arabic, in, in languages that people can access uh, for free. So we digitize a lot of books. You can check out uh, our library. It's all accessible through the website, ideasbeyondborders.org. Beautiful. Well, thank you again. And we'll have to have you on the show uh, again sometime soon. Thank you so much, David and Yael.
back here on Consumer Choice Radio. Great interview with Melissa Chen. Uh, we'll actually link to that also on our YouTube account. So go over to consumerchoiceradio.com and you'll be able to catch up on that. And uh, uh, I think that'll be a, a bit more interactive uh, than listening to our voices. But David, that went really well. One topic I wanted to come back to, uh, it's going to be very, very pertinent for many of our listeners here. Uh, we're talking about lockdowns. This story ain't over. Uh, in the state of North Carolina, where this program is broadcast on the radio, North Carolina is entering phase three of the reopening, uh, which actually doesn't mean anything at all. It actually means that the restaurants and, or the bars are still closed, uh, and bars can only have 40% capacity outside on patios. So we're not even getting that full uh, sort of yeah. reopening. Uh, and then I wanted to bring this up because I know that north of the United States, there are even more lockdowns that are being reordered. I know that uh, the province of Quebec, my home province, is uh, back in the kind of red zone lockdown. Uh, but I wanted to get uh, sort of your take on what's happening also in Ontario. It seems like there's a good number of lockdowns, and this could actually spell what our what the rest of the fall looks like for many of us in the States. Yeah. Yeah. And it couldn't come at a worse time. Um, it couldn't come at a worse time because in, I don't know, five weeks, we're going to be really limited as to what we can do outside. And so it's going to be quite, it's going to be pretty difficult to navigate through a second lockdown if there is one. And there are all sorts of competing voices here. I mean, if we go through a full second lockdown where restaurants are only able to serve people um, outside or just delivery and pickup, which is the real kind of lockdown, I, I don't know. I think it's like 60% of them will fail. Um, most of them can't turn a profit under these current rules, let alone going back to delivery and pickup. Um, and one thing that's really important, and I hope that this is what drives policy is that any of these lockdowns need to be regional. Uh, they need to evaluate where the hotspots are for the virus. And so if the GTA, the greater Toronto area, is where 60, 70% of Ontario's cases are, well, then you maybe have a, a, a good justification for rolling things back there. But don't do the same and punish people in part of northern Ontario where there are no cases and lock them down just because they happen to live in the same province. And so the real key here is making sure that our, so how they, how they pulled the restrictions back was done in a regional way. Uh, if they're going to re-implement the restrictions, I hope that they do that in a regional way as well. Otherwise, you're going to harm a lot of people uh, in the process who do not have, um, who do not have serious risk because the, the caseload is so low in the areas that they Yeah, and we're not even talking about, you know, the, the populations that would be more susceptible and ways to protect them. It's just about trying to basically control everyone's movements and shut down all businesses in, in this and that sector. And, you know, we've seen the impact of this, and it's tough. It's going to be tough, you know, for government finances, but even more if you're an entrepreneur, if you have your own restaurant or your bar, I mean, this is basically this entire year is just a huge black hole. And as you said, 60% could be gone. I mean, that's a travesty. Imagine the, the restaurants and bars that 
were set to open or people have great ideas and they'd love to, uh, that's, this is not going to be good. Um, this is going to be a pattern though. So, um, uh, unfortunately Canada is providing some examples of <laughs> what might happen in other States. I hope we would not get to that level. Uh, this is a uh, pretty concerning, um, in, where I am now in Europe, in Austria, we're, we're not in a second lockdown. They just require face masks in restaurants. So that's about it. There hasn't been too much else that's been required. Uh, so it's just the mask life, hashtag mask life. Uh, but no, no lockdowns as of yet. So thankfully, we've been able to avoid that. But, you know, there's a lot of arguments to be made over, are we looking at cases? Are we looking at hospitalizations? Are we looking at the number of people who unfortunately are passing away? Um, more debate on this to come. And, you know, this very much will decide uh, many people's fates and futures, you know, especially if you're an entrepreneur, if you're self-employed, uh, if you're employed in the hospitality industry itself. Uh, I mean, good God, it's hard pressed to, to probably find any hotels or restaurants making money right now. Yeah, a, lo- a lot of lives hang in the balance in terms of the spread of COVID-19 and a lot of livelihoods hang in the balance in terms of the restrictions that we uh, implement. And so my worry is that sometimes that gets lost um, in in the discussion. We may be too much focused on, well, how do we get the spread of COVID-19 to zero, um, which everybody knows is never going to happen given how infectious it is. And a lot of people forget the livelihood aspect of this, the people who opened a business. I mean, just around the corner from where I live was a, a barber shop that opened, I think, like a month before the lockdown. Um, and that's an extremely restricted service in the current conditions. I have no idea beyond just taking, beyond just like burning through your credit card. I have no idea how a business like that stays afloat and makes rent and and does, it does anything to kind of remotely resemble staying afloat um, through all of this. And so Uh, It's important to not forget those people. We obviously want to protect um, the population, especially the most vulnerable, those who are at risk, immunocompromised, the elderly, et cetera. But we also have to balance that with the fact that so many others' livelihoods rest in the balance. And if we get this wrong, um, the economic consequences will be uh, just absolutely The consequences will never be the same. (laughs) It's bad. Well... David, I think we uh, did a good distillation. Um, uh, hopefully, a lot of the listeners learned something. Uh, we had a good conversation, very freewheeling there with Melissa Chen. So please do follow her on the social media. I believe she's Miss Melissa Chen on the Twitters. Uh, please do continue to listen to the program, stay engaged. And uh, David, it was a pleasure to be on the mic with you once more. Yeah, another great week. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you all next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check with Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, Thanks again. Get your snow pants out. <laughs>